From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, Ross Gallagher. We've said goodbye to this week's guests, but I wanted to let you know what's coming up on this week's show. So we are covering UBS Purchases Swiss banking rival Credit Suisse, so anomaly or something worse. The UK's Financial Conduct Authority sends warning to payment providers. What does our panel think about how this could have been done better? And JP Morgan Chase mistakes valuable metals with a bag of stones. I guess they'll be counting those nickels and dimes for a while. We'll get into all this and much more on today's jam-packed news shows. But first, a few brief messages, so don't go anywhere. This episode is brought to you by Global Processing Services. At Global Processing Services, the expert partner in issuer processing, they take your security seriously. Their game-changing fraud advantage tool powered by FeatureSpace assesses fraud risks in milliseconds and uses AI and machine learning to constantly adapt to stay ahead of emerging fraud threats. With their array of available fraud solutions at your fingertips, you can feel secure with GPS as your payment processing partner. Find out more at www.globalprocessing.com forward slash fraud management. Buying a home is the biggest and most significant purchase most people make in their lifetime. And it doesn't matter where in the world you're buying, the process is rarely easy. In our latest report, experts from our 11FS Ventures team look at why the home buying process is broken, how we can fix it, and the massive commercial opportunity it presents for banks and fintechs. Download your free copy at 11FS.com slash homebuying. That's 11FS.com slash homebuying. Hello and welcome to episode 720 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, Venture Lead at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. So firstly, it's my 11FS co-host, Kate Moody, Global Strategy Director of Customer Experience. Kate, thanks for being here. Um, what have you been working on lately? What's, uh, what's exciting in your world? Well, my world is always just being nosy about customers. But um, yeah, just wrapping up one project, kind of looking at the pension space, which has been super interesting, but very depressing. Um, and yeah, just kind of kicking off some some new projects at the moment. So yeah, very, it's always that kind of really exciting stage, kind of at the beginning of a, a new partnership with clients and stuff, trying to work out what we should focus on and, and where they're going to go. So yeah, exciting times. Love it. Our resident uh, customer nerd. Um, great to have you, Kate. Um, and then making their FinTech Insider debut, we have Luke Massey, founder and CEO of Vipay. Luke, awesome to have you on the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Maybe you could give uh, our audience a brief introduction both to you and uh, what you're up to at Vipay. Thanks, Ross. Um, so yeah, I'm the founder of Vipay. We're a uh, account-to-account payments network built directly on top of the open banking uh, faster payment rails. Um, for the last two or three years, we've been offering peer-to-peer payments for consumers, um, notably streamers, content creators, um, and we're now evolving the product and moving more into a B2C space, uh, connecting brands to engaged transactional consumers. Nice. Awesome. Super exciting space. Um, and look, thanks thanks for jumping on and sharing your your insights. We're, we're really pleased to have you. Um, and then finally, we have um, a very welcome return to FinTech Insider for Sarah Kishensky, independent FinTech consultant. Sarah, welcome back. As I said, really great to have you. Maybe you can remind our listeners of you should they need reminding and, and um, I guess what an independent <laughs> FinTech consultant does. 
I wonder how many listeners have just turned off and gone, oh God, she's back again. Um, so, so basically I do what I've always done. Um, I work with anybody across the financial services ecosystem, helping them understand the fintech landscape, helping them understand the market, what's coming down the road and helping them plan their fintech strategy. So whether that's, uh, you know, a, a VC fund looking at, you know, what kind of companies they should be investing in and, and helping them with kind of the due diligence on companies, or whether it's helping banks work out kind of what they should be doing in the world of fintech and innovation, where they should be partnering, um, all of that good stuff. I, I work with, I'm, I'm very open to clients from across the financial services spectrum. Um, and in my spare time, I do a bit of writing and I do a bit of podcasting and, you know, you can't get rid of me that easily. No, lovely. Great to have you, Sarah, as always. Um, so that's our awesome panel. Um, so let's, uh, let's get into the news. Um, our first story comes from CNN with a headline, UBS is buying Credit Suisse in bid to halt banking crisis. Uh, so a biggie to start off with this week. Uh, so Switzerland's biggest bank, UBS, has agreed to buy its ailing rival Credit Suisse in an emergency rescue deal. The aim of the deal is to stem the financial market panic unleashed by the failure of two American banks earlier this month. UBS is paying 3 billion Swiss francs or $3.25 billion for Credit Suisse, about 60% less than the bank was worth when markets closed on Friday the 17th of March. Extraordinarily, the deal will not need the approval of shareholders after the Swiss government agreed to change the law to remove any uncertainty about the deal. So maybe, Sarah, I'll come to you first on this one. It feels a little bit like uh, deja vu, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, it, I wouldn't say... I would say the speed at which it happened was a surprise. I would say the way in which it's happened is a surprise. Certainly the legal changes were something not a lot of people saw coming. Um, on the other hand, and, uh, you know, uh, please don't take this the wrong way, but Switzerland is probably one of the few countries where it could have happened this way. Um, you know, they only have these two large banks. They are both, you know, systematically important. They had to do something and they had to do something quickly. Um, I think it's important to note that Credit Suisse had been in trouble for a while, uh, you know, from a financial perspective and also from a regulatory perspective. An awful lot of fines going towards Credit Suisse, an awful lot of behaviour by Credit Suisse, um, you know, executives and, and the bank as a whole that was, was considered unacceptable by the financial services community. Um, so I would say it was something that is unlikely to spread. There aren't many other banks with Credit Suisse's rap sheet and record and ways of doing businesses. And as we know, there aren't that many other banks in Switzerland. So I think it was unprecedented, but also a rather unique set of circumstances. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because we are being sort of told, oh, well, you know, SVB was a bit of an anomaly. They'd made some bad decisions around how they were capitalised. Of course, now we've got Credit Suisse. We're kind of also saying, actually, that was an anomaly because we've sort of known maybe that there were these material weaknesses we've probably known for years. And like you said, if it was going to happen to anyone, it was probably going to happen to Credit Suisse. Um, Kate, keen to get your thoughts. Are these actually anomalies or should we be worried that maybe there's something bigger at play here? Well, I think Sarah's obviously done a very good job at sort of explaining kind of the precise circumstances around Credit Suisse individually. But what we... I think are seeing is just greater scrutiny of banks, financials generally. Obviously, I think the whole market, everyone involved in, in this picture is now looking out for any signs that financial institutions are less secure than you know previously we were assuming. So, you know, I think my understanding is it's got initially obviously Credit Suisse had a long tail of issues and things that were 
problematic. Um, but the thing that really triggered this was when the kind of the, the Saudi bank that was their main investor announced either deliberately or, or not that they were not going to increase increase their stake in the business. So I think as soon as warning signs like that appear that someone doesn't have confidence in a bank, then what we have seen and what is, I think, common across the board is that events can happen very, very quickly. And I think this is something that is different to where we were in 2008. You know, people can withdraw their deposits so quickly now. And we talked on the show last week about the the speed at which that came that came to bear with SBB. And I think something similar has happened with, with Credit Suisse, where they just saw this astronomically accelerated run on on kind of their assets. And so that's, I think, what is both kind of similar, but also like specifically unique about what is happening at this point in time, which hasn't happened previously in the financial services sector. Yeah, I think I think that's a key point. I think it's really useful actually to sort of delineate the what's happening now with sort of 2008, because I think you hit on exactly the right word, which is confidence, right? And I think that's also shown in how the Swiss government sort of agreed to change the law to get the deal over to get a deal over the line as quickly as possible, remove any uncertainty. So, Luke, do you think this is maybe more a crisis of sort of like market confidence rather than necessarily a sort of liquidity crisis as we saw in 2008? Um, no, I do think there is a liquidity crisis um, coming very quick. Uh, I don't think this is uh, an anomaly. I think what has happened to Credit Suisse is an anomaly, um, but it's all linked to confidence. Um, so when you think, when you take it back to the absolute bearings of what a bank is, it's people, um, confident depositing or large organizations depositing. Um, and in the example of Credit Suisse, it's right in saying that the, the main shareholder was Saudi, um, who said they wouldn't be putting any more in. And I think the headline, uh, when he said it on stage was what got, um, taken as a, a sound clip it and was what was shared via media, uh, which immediately, uh, obviously tanked um, everyone's everyone's worries. I think there was a um, a justifiable answer for for why the Saudis wouldn't put any more money into Credit Suisse, which was it was going to take it over the twenty percent threshold, which meant it would have been a political player in Saudi and would have tapped into regulatory issues, and that's what basically made a run on the banks. But in in Credit Suisse's um, particular uh, case, as Sarah was saying, this has been a a bank for a quite, for quite some time where the alarms have been there, um, and in this digital era. Uh, when people start to join the dots um, and two plus two doesn't equal four anymore, then, then people are going to get scared. I think my concern and everyone else's concern sort of in the space and wider should be, what is this going to mean now um, for the next 12 months? I think if you follow it through to its conclusion, you you can imagine in 12, 18 months time, we might only have a handful of big banks um, and everything else gets swallowed up. Um, and, and, you know, UBS takes on, Credit Suisse and UBS gets taken on by someone else and there's this this big knock-on effect because banks are going to have to close up a lot of the um, the gaps in their uh, asset balance sheets um, and I don't know where that's going to come from. Um, so the only logical answer is they're, they're going to have to increase the interest rates um, but then that has a, a lot of other knock-on effects. So it's uh, it's quite a big one to start with on the podcast and I'm sure Sarah and Kate know a, a lot more about me but I think the number one word you keep coming back to is confidence. If you don't have confidence in a bank, then you don't have a bank. Yeah, no, and that's such a good point, actually, and a really succinct way to uh, to sum it up. I guess, Sarah, keen to sort of bring you back in, get your sort of reaction to, to Luke's points about how this is going to play out, and then maybe the regulator's response sort of more broadly. I think, obviously, they've acted quite swiftly and quickly with most of these uh, deals, both in the US and, and, and in Switzerland. And I wonder if you think maybe we've learned some lessons from 2008 there. 
So I think there's there's loads of points to pick up on, um, you know, a lot of which were covered last week, I think, that are quite general. I mean, the role of social media here has been absolutely huge, particularly when we're looking at the SVB, you know, Silvergate signature um, scenario. I think with Credit Suisse, it's the sort of bank Credit Suisse is. It's, so, so it's not social media, but it's the grapevine. Credit Suisse has one type of client and they all talk to each other. So, you know, they will be discussing it. Um, I think in terms of kind of the the wider banking landscape and what we're going to see, like, is it a contraction or not? I really think it depends what market you're in. I think in the US, we probably will. They have an awful lot of banks in the US. (laughs) And um, there has definitely been a flight from kind of the smaller community regional banks towards, you know, the big the big four, the big five. Um, which is a shame because the smaller banks were were starting to really get to grips with kind of serving customers' needs kind of in this modern world. And they had an advantage there because they knew their customers. They, they knew these people. Um, they were literally serving a community of people who could walk into a branch and they'd say hello to every single one and know their name. And they were starting to capitalise on that. But I do think that they... the people have been spooked. Luke's point, confidence has been shaken. I think we've seen more of that in the US than we've seen in Europe so far, partly because most people understand that Credit Suisse is not a bank that applies to them. If there had been, you know, BNP Paribas or HSBC, people would be absolutely panicking. But because most people think of Credit Suisse as a Swiss bank for rich people, (laughs) I think it's had a different sort of impact perhaps on general confidence levels. The other thing, I think, to your point about regulators, it's been really interesting to see um, the FDIC in the US, I think, did an incredible job of stepping in and moving quickly, creating those two bridge banks. Um, It will be interesting to see there the impact of agreeing to cover the uninsured deposits. That money has to come come from somewhere. They said it'll come from, you know, um, exceptional circumstances. They're going to assess the situation and it'll, it'll come from banks. The bank that is still, you know, solvent will have to pay to fill that gap. What impact is that going to be on individuals and and businesses? I think what we might well see in the US is some regulatory reform. The FDIC perhaps is no longer fit for purpose. Um, That might be slightly unfair, but I think the whole thing will be making all regulators stop and think, how did this happen? How can we prevent it happening again? There is always the argument there that things were brought in to prevent it happening again in the US and then somebody took them away again, <laughs> um, which we haven't seen so much of, of of in Europe. But I think it will depend where you are. Um, I'm confident that the contraction in Europe will be smaller, but it will be country by country. And the US, they have a lot of banks. In Italy, they have a lot of banks. Um, in the UK, France, Spain, not so much. Um, so I think it will it will vary region to region. But yes, I think all regulators will be looking at this and thinking, how do we prevent it happening again? What what controls can we put in place? Um, and then I think, oh, sorry, another point about regulation is what regulation comes in for social media? What are kind of Ofcom and its equivalents going to look at for what you can and can't say on social media? They've really struggled to control you know, things like Twitter, of course they have. That's that's the nature of the platform. But is there going to be, you know, I, I, the SEC is looking at some of those people who tweeted in the US saying, get all your money out now, panic. You know, are other regulators going to do the same thing and say, if you provoke panic, if you can be held accountable for starting a bank run, we will come for you. Um, I think that's another interesting regulatory side of things that we, we might see more of. That's hugely challenging though, right? Like how do you of how course. do you draw the line on that? Like you've got to still retain the ability to be able to talk about if again, if this is about confidence, you know, you can't mandate customers to have confidence when they when they don't have confidence. So I think you're right. Like we definitely need to think about and understand its implications, but I'll be really surprised if they can actually come to some sort of like government legislative approach that controls people talking about their banks and whether they have confidence in them or not. 
SEC went after Musk after, um, you know, the, the, what he basically said essentially was insider trading. You know, they can go after people for, I mean, not you or I, but those big VCs who were failed to understand banking. <laughs> that for me is the point as well, right? You've got people who fail to understand banking, but equally you potentially have people that have taken short positions on some of these banks and are actually mm. commenting and affecting um, market movement, right? Which is uh, definitely something that... Um, you know, needs shining a light on. And sort it is of, an offence. Right, exactly. And I, I fully appreciate the, the, the sort of practical um, difficulties around that one, but definitely one that needs looking at. But if you take that one step even further back, you know, we're talking about the fact that shareholders don't have to approve what's going on with UBS and Credit Suisse. So when we're talking about market makers, yes, the government are literally dictating that that is happening. Um, and if you talk about the, the, the size of the deal, $3 billion for Credit Suisse, that's one tenth of Revolut. <laughs> you know, I'm sure Revolut would have would have. Uh, would, well, you know, it was one well, tenth of Revolut. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, that's the the point I'm trying to make is when, when you're talking about market movers, an individual influencer who is a depositor, i.e., VC, who's quite vocal, and I think we know what we're talking to about. Um, you know, Jason and and Sachs and stuff like that on Twitter, and everyone was following that. Um, what impact do they really have versus the people that are saying, okay, this bank is going to acquire this bank, and no one has a say on it? I think that's a bigger issue. <laughs> that's more of a market maker. Yeah, and another interesting, I guess, um, difference between now and 2008, where obviously one of the biggest criticisms was that sort of shareholders and bondholders were protected and all of that sort of stuff. So maybe learning some lessons there as well. Um, I think this one's going to run and run. Um, I'm going to move us on to our next story, uh, which comes from The Times with a headline, FCA warns payment firms over, quote, unacceptable risk of harm to customers. Uh, so regulators in Britain have threatened to shut down payment firms that do not have robust systems in place to safeguard customer money in the face of jitters shaking the financial system. We really can't get away from this stuff at the minute. The Financial Conduct Authority, or the FCA, has written to almost 300 chief executives of payment firms, including e-money card operators, urging them to tighten up their processes. Matthew Long, the FCA's payment director, said, Some firms do not have sufficiently robust controls and pose an, quote, unacceptable risk of harm to their customers and to financial system integrity. Um, so Luke, we'll come to you first on this one. I know Vipay was uh, one of the payment companies which received this letter from the uh, FCA. I guess let's start with, I mean, what were your, your sort of first thoughts on, on receiving the letter? Um, so I think, first of all, the FCA are in place to do a job, um, a very tough one at that. They're there ultimately to protect consumers. Uh, and make sure that people that are operating are operating correctly. What they've asked for in their letter shouldn't should should have been the same, consistent whether whatever's been happening with the bank's fallout uh, did or did not happen. The uh, the things that they're asking for in a letter um, are, are there to protect the end consumer. So the the first thing is is the timing of the letter was obviously linked to fear in the market, and the FCA where it's come uh, trouble down for is is you know let's just make sure that there's there's things in place. Uh, and that we're not covering our own backs, but we're doing our job. So if anyone ever says something happened, we can say, well, we actually wrote to the industry, et cetera. Um, in Vibe's um, specific case, um, the letter doesn't really appear, well, doesn't really understand our business model. Um, and there's a few things um, around that. So uh, one of the things they were asking for was uh, to prove tighter controls um, around uh, consumers' money. And we don't hold any consumers' money. Uh, we're essentially a PISP. We use as a Vipay link a bank account to a, a profile uh, and then they initiate payments or receive payments directly on the, uh, the faster payment rails. 
In other words, payments need to be initiated from within the bank's uh, ecosystem. We don't touch funds. We don't hold onto funds. Um, so some of the things, well, all the things that we're asking for were not relevant to us. Um, but the letter itself caused a, a lot of stress internally uh, on our business. You know, companies like ours are very, very thin. We have one person in compliance, one person in finance, uh, one person in operations. And then you add a, um, basically a very extremely threatening letter uh, at an already uh, pretty stressful time. It, it, it's, uh, it was very, very hard to deal with. Uh, I posted on LinkedIn. I understand the FCA has got a role to do. I understand that uh, things are a bit turbulent right now, but it doesn't, it feels like a, a you know, a, a one solution doesn't fit all. And I think that that's what the FCA is doing with this. Um, and it does that with a lot of its practices. I mean, one of the big ones to talk about as well is, is, um, you know, who does KYC? Um, you know, and what, what, what should Vibe be doing more than a bank? Um, you know, if, if, if you, you can't use Vibe Pay if you don't have a UK bank account. So what more KYC could we possibly be doing? Um, so yeah, to, to answer the question in short, it was, uh, it wasn't unexpected to receive something like that uh, from the FCA, the well within the right to do so. The timing uh, was obviously directly linked to macroeconomic environments um, and the letter content itself um, didn't feel specific to our, our business. Uh, and it just felt like everyone got the same message regardless of what your type of business is. Yeah, and I can absolutely understand. I think you articulated it really well. The the stress, and I guess obviously the the reaction that that would cause. Um, getting that getting that letter from the FCA. I think it's important that the you know that um, people that are holding customer funds and are really susceptible to market contagion. Um, you know, if you if you're if there's a run on a bank and you're you're an e uh, e wallet provider and you've got you're holding people's funds and you can't prove or you know there's no shadow fund then. 100% you should be reporting to the FCA and there should be different levels of scrutiny. But if you're a PISP and you're literally moving money from one bank account to another bank account, which has to happen in a, in the bank's environment anyway, I feel like, you you know, the conversation's happening at the wrong, wrong end, really. Yeah. Sarah, I mean, someone familiar with the, the matter said that the, the regulator's concerns reflected its, quote, long-term priorities. But listening to Luke, it sounds a little bit more like a, a sort of knee-jerk reaction in response to everything that's going on in the market. W- what's your thoughts on that? Um, I, you know, I don't have any sort of inside information on it, but I can see both sides of it. I mean, some of this goes back to Wirecard, right? Some of this goes all the way back to what happened with Wirecard. Um, you know, institutions that were only licensed as e-money institutions that were that, that consumers thought were holding their funds. Actually, it turned out that obviously they weren't holding their funds because it was you know a bank at the back end. That bank at the back end goes under, and all of a sudden you people got people who can't access their money and they're panicking. And I think you know we said at the time um, that that was going to spur some regulatory you know innovation or some regulatory changes because. Um, that's a situation that a you know Wirecard going down could have been foreseen possibly, um, but the the fact that consumers didn't know who held their money and there were so many institutions that customers thought were holding their money that that weren't um, was creating a bit of a, a you know a market problem particularly here in the UK. So I think I think it, they have been thinking about it for a while. I don't think it's unfair to say that they ha- haven't been thinking about it. But to Luke's point to come out and send a blanket letter right now when they've had three years to think about how they're going to do this does speak to or suggest that they are being reactionary. The other point I would make is that the FCA has for a long time been very under-resourced and understaffed and they are struggling to do almost you know, the bare minimum, um, not entirely 
that's not their own fault. So um, blanket letters, no, not the best way to go about doing things. But I would question whether they had the resources to spend a lot of time and effort, you know, sending them out individually. And dear CEO letters generally go blanket as well. Just up, just just on what Sarah said, there is um, e e wallet is a very different type of business, very different risks, um, very different license to what a Viper uh, offers and and has. So as a as a regulator, we we don't even we're not even regulated to hold customer funds. Never mind touch them. Um, we can't put any you know further. You know one of the things that the FCA was asking for was uh, more controls when you hold customer funds. We don't hold customer funds, <laughs> so that letter has nothing to do with us. Um, there's nothing we could actually even respond to that letter, if you will. Um, so yeah, in terms of what the FCA is asking for, it's absolutely right for them to be asking e-money e providers, uh, smaller uh, t uh, tier T3 banks, etc., for that. But that sh they should be asking for that r regardless of what's happened in the last three weeks. Is what I'm saying. That should, is consistent messaging. If they're not, if companies aren't providing um, detailed um, processes on how they hold customer funds then they shouldn't have an FCA license anywhere. So the letters actually, my, my point was, I'm not sure about what this letter says and the timing of it seems very off. What it felt like to me was there's going to be a lot of downward pressure now and the FCA need to, for me, communicate, look, we are doing something um, and this is a letter we sent to uh, payment companies, regardless of whether it was contextual or not. And yeah, you're completely right. The FCA are there to do a job. They're massively underfunded and we try and do our best. And I'd like to try and speak to someone in the FCA and say, look, this isn't relevant to, to PISPs, um, to maybe work with them, to actually reduce workload, uh, as opposed to, you know, if everyone's just sending something back that's the same, I don't think it, it helps anyone. Kate, I think that point about licensing has come up a couple of times, right? <clears throat> and I think, you know, when we look at particularly sort of e-money licenses, for example, I guess key to... Um, the growth and the success of fintech in the UK, but I suppose how much is that contributing to the, 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 some of the concerns that we're talking about now, or is this more an issue around? I think Luke made a really good point. If they didn't have these processes and controls in place in the first in the first place, and that the FCA wasn't all over them and had full, full visibility, then why did they get a license? Yeah, I think. It, I mean. I totally, you know, I think this is a really important debate for us to be having. I think both Luke and Sarah have made like very valuable points. I suppose. I can see that the FCA is trying to strike a really difficult balance between wanting to make the, the the fintech space competitive, wanting to give different platforms the opportunity to kind of come out, connect with customers, start offering things and kind of prove their worth that way. So we've seen the UK issue a ton more licenses of these types. So, you know, the you know, payment institution licenses, I think in 2021, we issued 107 of them and then 45 e-money licenses, you know, that's significantly more than what we're seeing elsewhere in continental Europe. I think the closest other European countries were the Netherlands, which did 10 payment institution licenses, and Lithuania, which did 10 e-money licenses. So they've been very proactive at issuing these licenses, and that obviously is great for competition in the this, in this space. But if they then, to Sarah's point, don't have the bodies on the ground, the expertise to kind of actually go out and partner with those organisations to then hold them accountable and kind of monitor them and support them, do you end up with these overly broad measures, which to Luke's point, are kind of probably trying to kind of capture a really broad set of different platforms and offerings under kind of one sweeping judgment? Like, is that really adding value? Um, I'm, I'm not really sure. I think one suggestion is is to have tiers into, dependent on risk. You know, so a, a PISP license, which is what Vibe has, 
um, the risks are so low when it comes to payment fraud in the sense that in order for someone to commit fraud on Vibe, they have to have a user's online banking details. And if they have a user's online banking details, then they're going to penetrate fraud in, in that ecosystem, not in Vibe's ecosystem. And that also is linked to KYC as well. So Vibe has an, so much process that we have to do to meet our regulatory uh, requirements, which are the same as an e-wallet or bank, um, but we don't have uh, that level of risk that they, they do. Um, you know, so for example, KYC, we're told that we also have to do our own KYC on a customer, but it isn't any different to uh, the information that we ha- collect from the bank. You know, and, 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 and this is what could reduce the workload and make the FCA um, a lot more efficient, I would say. I mean, I really do feel for the FCA because as a startup myself, we're always starved of resource. You know, I'd love to throw so much more resource at a certain department of the business, but we just can't. But that's when as a startup, you have to say, okay, well, where, where can we create the most value, et cetera? And I think for the FCA, it would be, you know, we've got these 150 odd uh, PISP licenses that you, you referred to. And then we've got these 45 e- e-wallet. Well, when you look at what's going on, the real risk is there, those 45 guys. Okay, well, what controls are you doing with customer deposits? That letter to those guys is absolutely correct and should have been. That letter to, to the tier below doesn't make any contextual sense. You know, we, how can we show controls over money we don't hold? You know what I mean? Um, so that, that's the point we're, we're trying to get to. So I want to work with the FCA to try and work on this to make it even better because on one one part, the, the promise of open banking was to make it more innovative and lower the barriers to entry. So there could be founders like myself that could innovate and create products and solutions for end consumers. But that isn't just, innovation doesn't come from just a product per, uh, perspective. It also comes from a business model perspective. And if the business model is still the same, where we have to invest in um, intensive KYC processes and anti-money laundering processes, when that's already being done by the tier one banks, then we can't innovate at a business model level. And that's the challenge you see. I think it's a classic example of innovation moving faster than regulators. You know, it's that, you know, and the FCA has frequently and regularly said we are willing to work with fintechs. And I, for one, believe that. But I also believe that they just don't have the capacity to do it to the level at which is needed. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's always going to be a problem. Innovators are always going to move faster than regulators, as are cyber criminals. Um, <laughs> it's always going to be the way. Yeah, it's, the criminals are, are not going after, you know, um, how do we hack into a Vipair user's account? Because they can't do anything. Um, mm. what, they're asking, what they're trying to do is go after the e-wallet where they might be able to send and receive money with that because it's outside of a bank's ecosystem. <laughs> um, so, you know, as I said, I'd love to sit down with the FCA and go, okay, these are the risks from a PIS perspective. Um, this is the risk uh, in and outside of the ecosystem, et cetera, um, and, and, and make those processes uh, a little bit different. Because as I said, the KYC one is such a, such a tough one. You know, in order for us to KYC every individual, whether we do it ourselves or use an external party like Onfido, et cetera, you're looking at three to five pounds to onboard a free consumer. Like the unit economics don't make sense for a business like Vibe then. You've got the cost of acquisition, then you've got the cost of onboarding, then you've got the cost of retention from a non-revenue generating user. Like how can you product innovate um, when those unit economics don't stand up? You know, so it's um, it's a tough one. And I think the key takeaway from me, Luke, in, in terms of what you said is how can you how can you work closer with the FCA 
to make all of this better for everybody, right? Because we're all sort of sitting here. I think everybody wants the same thing. And it's just how do we work together to sort of move move in that direction? Um, again, another one I think that could, uh, that could absolutely run and run, but I'm going to move us on. Um, so we're just going to take a quick pause here and we'll be back very shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a reminder to go check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insight Show. Is FinOps the key to ride out the economic storm? That's the question David Breer is asking in this week's show with expertise from Google, Weaver, and 11FS. So do go check that out wherever you get this podcast. Why not queue it up in your podcast app after this one? Okay, um, let's get on to our next story, which comes from TechCrunch with a headline Stripe now valued at $50 billion following $6.5 billion raise. So Digital payments company Stripe announced that it raised over $6.5 billion in Series I funding to value the company at $50 billion. New investors in the round include GIC and Goldman Sachs Asset. They joined existing investors, including Andreessen Horowitz. The payments giant was expected to raise a lower amount of funding uh, around about $2 billion at a $60 billion valuation, according to reports. At its height, Stripe was publicly valued at $95 billion. At the same time as the funding, Stripe announced it would be working with OpenAI to power payments for ChatGPT Plus and DAL-E. Stripe also plans to incorporate OpenAI's new natural language technology, GPT-4, into its products and services. Gosh, the words billion and dollars have lost all meaning for me after that. Um Kate, I will come to you first on this one. What was your uh, what was your reaction when you read this one? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think lots of people are a bit taken aback by the the size of the round, right? Like, I think six point six million. Yeah, so just it's just a, a lot of money. <laughs> I think that's more than the entire value of of lots of very successful fintechs, including the likes of of Monzo. So, yeah, it's it's a large amount of money. I mean, Stripe have come out and said quite clearly that you know, they don't need this capital to run the business, and that the money's being used to kind of provide. I think what they described as liquidity to form to current and former employees and to do with sort of tax obligations and, and sorts of fun things around that. But yeah, it's it's a huge round. Um and obviously, you know, we've seen Stripe um change its own internal share valuation a couple of times in the last year or so. So I think in July twenty twenty two it sort of slashed it. Um, and then they laid off, I think, over a thousand people, about fourteen percent of their staff in November. And then they've dropped it again internally at the start of twenty twenty three. So, you know, I think this isn't a it isn't a surprise that that there is a down round, but the scale of it is is I think what surprised me. Maybe maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention. Sarah, were you surprised? Um, not really. Um, I think the down round was coming. I think my key takeaway from this story is that if Stripe can do it, you can do it. Like if you need the money, take the money, stop 
stop worrying about a down round. Like if you need the money to keep going, take the money to keep going. I mean, a lot of one of the things that came out of SVB was that a lot of startups were taking debt, um, venture debt over over going out and raising again because they didn't want to, to face a down round. But it's now really a time that you want to be taking on more debt. It's, it's not going to be appropriate for everybody. Um, I think there's also a huge amount of ego at play in the down round. The, the, the biggest concern that, as far as I understand it, is about dilution when you take a down round. And that will completely depend from company to company on, on what, what kind of an impact that's going to have um, on, you know, the founders and, 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 other, and, and other investors. Um, but I think that when Klarna took its down round, it was a bit a, a bit more complicated because the business had already proved itself to be, you know, making losses and everybody knew the regulators are coming for buy now, pay later. And it was kind of a bit of a, a perfect storm. And then the news came out about the CEO taking, you know, that walking great salary at the same time as they were taking a down round. And so all of that felt a bit, a bit more uncomfortable. But when Stripe comes out and does it, I don't believe that the people who run that business for a second don't know what they're doing. And if, you know, if they can take a down round, then I think other companies can. I should caveat that with not all companies, but I think we needed, we needed this. We need this valuation reset. We need to understand that valuations need to become more sensible in line with economic conditions. Um, and what needs to be seen, I think, is that taking a down round isn't a sign of investors' um, you know, disbelief in your business model or, or you know, concern over the, the viability of your business. It's a reflection of market conditions. Um, so that's, that's my interpretation of it. Yeah, I think it's an excellent interpretation. I, I completely agree. I think we shouldn't be looking at down routes necessarily as a badge of dishonor. The simple fact is market dynamics have shifted. And Sarah, I think to your point, it's a correction, right? Um, Luke, what are your thoughts? I think Sarah articulated that extremely well. Um, not much to add, really. Um, other than I wouldn't, I would love a six billion down round. Um, I'd love to. Should we share one? Yeah, because I, I think mean, we could take a, a quarter each. <laughs> I mean, that, a six billion. Um, in fact, I, I actually think the the six billion was actually for to cover tax situation for Stroud, which is insane when you think about it. We're we're that profitable. We're doing that well. We need to do a down round to pay a tax bill. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, Striper are the best in the game. Um, the, the, the brothers are geniuses and they are, you know, the best of the best. So like Sarah said, if, if those guys, um, who will, will have the best advisors as well, um, I've priced it at, you know, nearly half what it was valued at then that's a market correction. That isn't, um, that isn't a sign that people aren't, uh, confident in their business model. Um, although there's a lot of people comparing them to Adyen at the moment and, uh, GMV and the, uh, the profits there. Uh, Stripe's the best in the game. So yeah, uh, runway is important. So any founders that are out there that do have um, financing options on the table at the moment for equity, um, take, take the cash. That would be my advice. I think as well, we keep obviously referring to this as a down round, and of course it is. But I mean, a $50 billion valuation, especially in this market context, is still absolutely eye-watering. Um, speaking of valuations, and Kate, I think something you and I have talked about on the show before, uh, what do you think this uh, this funding means for the uh, potential and much talked about Stripe IPO? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of like kind of like well, they won't, they will, they won't, they. Um, I think the last it was reported was that they were sort of going to make a decision. I think in the next year they'd hired Goldman Sachs apparently to and J P Morgan, the the dynamic duo, to advise on on the deal. So I think what I'd read was that the fact that they'd taken this route, they'd kind of had the choice between kind of pushing forward the IPO and, and taking this round. So maybe the fact they've taken this round means that they're pushing that back. But oh, I don't know. 
but I, I'm I, I'm not sure. I'm I'm still just waiting and, and watching. Sarah, what about you? Well, I was going to say, I think a certain amount of the money, so there was the, the point about the tax bill, <laughs> which is a very important point. The other part of it was to do with impl- uh, liquidity for um, liquidity of shares for employees. And I wonder if kind of some of this money, I don't, I haven't looked into the details and I'm not sure they've published all the details, but how some of the funding is going to be used to redistribute that and redistribute shares among employees, just to hold off that kind of IPO. So it's not needed to IPO because they can keep employees happy by doing something slightly different with their, their shareholdings. Yeah, just just for anyone who's listening that uh, doesn't know how it works, Stripe to attract the top talent uh, gives share options to um, their people at a v- high valuation. That valuation is no longer reflective. Therefore, the shares that have been given um, aren't valued at that or half of what that is. So Stripe either have to ask the staff to take that hit or they do that, and that's what Stripe have done. So. Yeah, I think look, they're building a, a, a great business. I, I can't see Stripe going uh, public for for quite some time now, probably three years. Um, the market is just insane right now, you know. And let, uh, I mean, if anyone could do it, it could be a Stripe. Um, but you know, they're probably out there on their own that could could get away with going public. It definitely it definitely doesn't mean we'll stop talking about it though. Um, Kate, just a very quick thought on uh, the use of of Chat GPT. Um, and, and how do you see that playing out in terms of like fintechs wanting to work with them and all that sort of stuff? We've seen lots of big banks sort of ban it internally and all that sort of stuff. So an interesting move from Stripe here as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, City, Deutsche, I think they've all come out and said no chat GPT, which, you know, obviously there's lots of very sensible thinking behind that. It's a new emerging technology. Um, but I think to Luke's point, you know, Stripe typically have been innovators and, and leading the way. So I'm not surprised the bank, the bank systems would just break. <laughs> These are legacy systems. You drop ChatGPT in there, it it have to be with you know well within its own ecosystem. Um, Stripe have, have been building differently uh, on modern technology rails, um, implementing their own technology rails, uh, and, and have probably had a you know a lot of uh, system architects look at it and go, this is actually doable without other things breaking. You know, you, you change an API in the banks and there's maintenance work for three weeks. So <laughs> it, it's a very different player. I think there's also important to distinguish between the two different ways it wants to use, you know, the two different, you know, approaches it's taking. One is kind of like, you know, working with OpenAI to power payments and the other is to incorporating, you know, nat- uh, natural language technology into its products and services. Well, on the one hand, that could be enhancing, you know, customer support and, and frequently asked questions. But then you look at the other side and it's kind of like powering payments. They're two completely different use cases. Um, so I think it's, you know, uh, you know, if, if it's incorporating, you know, the natural language technology to help with customer service, you know, all those kind of things where we have seen AI used for a very long time, um, then, you know, to Luke's point, yeah, they will know how to do that and do it in such a way that misinformation isn't given and that it doesn't, you know, cause their systems to spontaneously self-combust. I think what worries me, because I'm an analyst and a cynic, is the idea of processing payments through something that is frequently completely incorrect <laughs> and sometimes, you know, libelously so. Um so yeah, sorry, Kate, you finish your point because we've talked over you and I'm going to be like female workplace and say no, your time to, your time no, to finish. No. <laughs> I'm just I'm just excited about the prospect of anything that can make chatbots even a smidgen better. So I appreciate, yeah, Sarah, it's not always going to be right, but at least it might not treat me like a complete vacant void. I think just to round it off as well as you've got to think, why, why is Stripe doing this? It's, you know, it's not just about jumping on technology. It's it's going to be a huge revenue line for them going yeah. forward. 
and and that and that's it. It's going to be a massive mammoth of a, a partnership. If you're looking at the uh, revenue forecast for where ChatGPT uh, is going to be, and that's the that was part of the discussion and negotiation. I think which was Stripe is the payment processor for that. Yeah, but I look hopefully as well some good use cases um, for end end users as well, right? And look good to see that they're sort of I suppose pushing the outer bounds of our imagination in terms of how these uh, these technologies can be applied. All right, I'm going to move us on. Um, the next story comes from Business Cloud uh, with a headline, Final Tech Nation Report, What UK Tech Needs to Quadruple in Value. So Tech Nation, the growth platform for UK-based tech scale-ups, has released its final report titled How to Build a Scale-Up. The report highlights that scale-ups in the UK have returned just over $583 billion in value over the last 10 years, uh, that's between 2014 and 2023, which has been achieved by exits including acquisition, SPAC or public listings. Over the next decade, to return around the same rate of value to the ecosystem, just over 3.7x investment, UK tech firms should target exits of $2 trillion dollars. The report estimates that the value of the UK tech ecosystem will reach 2.6 trillion by 2032, up from its 1 trillion in 2022, if the momentum gathered is maintained. This is the final report, of course, from Tech Nation before its closure in March, after the UK government withdrew its funding and handed the £12 million to Barclays. Now, to find out a little bit more about what Tech Nation hopes to see actioned on the back of this report, we reached out to Dr. George Windsor, Tech Nation's Data and Research Director. On the back of the Tech Nation report 2023, there are three key things that we want to see actioned. One, plug patient capital into all stages of company growth, not just at early stages, to ensure UK companies have the resources to live up to the promise of creating a global science and technology superpower. We probably need around 15 times more investment in deep tech and climate tech by the end of the decade to stimulate and sustain the growth we all need to see. And I'm not just talking about the UK economy, but the world we live in. Two, rethink talent gaps and emphasize opening access to opportunities in tech for all people. Organizations like Color in Tech are taking huge strides to make tech accessible and fair, and more must be done to support them and the enhancement of diversity in tech. And three, prioritize value realization. One thing that we might want to take from the Silicon Valley playbook is their sense of exit intentionality. Tech leaders need to be thinking far more actively about late-stage liquidity events from the get-go. Capital and talent must continue to be recycled through the ecosystem to create additional value and knowledge must be deepened and shared around late-stage growth. Yeah, so really um, what sound like quite sensible recommendations from Dr. George Windsor there, Luke. Um, keen to bring you in, obviously, um, as, a, as a founder yourself and, and sort of get your reaction to this one. Um, yeah, all three points were amazing. I would actually do them in the, the the opposite way. You know, if you if the UK really does want to triple its output in this space, I think we do need to take a lot from Silicon Valley. Um, and what Silicon Valley has uh, more than anyone is this uh, built up ecosystem over generations. Founders have been done the playbook, uh, invested in startups themselves, 
sat on advisory boards, etc. Uh, we are starting to see that now in Europe and it will accelerate growth. You know, what might take me 10, 15 years might only take me five, eight years in, in the US. Um, so that's a 2x on the, on the cycle. Talent moving from late stage companies, having uh, an exit event themselves and then being able to invest in startups will, will obviously have a, a very uh, positive impact. That also then uh, unlocks uh, point number one, which was access to capital. In the UK, there is uh, a lot of seed capital available, checks between 200,000 uh, $200, a million. Uh, and then there seems to be a gap between seed and series A, series B, what we refer to in, in startup founder land as no man's land. Uh, you've built a product, you've got some early traction, but you're not hitting the metrics that a series A investor, institutional investor wants to see before they, they drive it forward. Um, but having key people on the team that have been there and done it and can say, look, we understand the hard yards and we know how to get this business to it. We are executors ourselves, reassures that uh, funding gap. You know, in, in the US, you've got um, series A investors who will invest at start at the seed very first check because they know the people that are behind it. They know it's going to get there. Um, so yeah, everything you said there was, was great. I think the UK is getting there. I think we're becoming a, a global superpower, certainly in fintech. Um, and when, when some of these realization, um, events happen, you know, founders, uh, of Monzo, et cetera, and Tom, in, uh, in things, I think it will get much, much better and much, much quicker. Yeah. It's interesting when you break it down like that, because you can see how these measures start to actually become cyclical, right? And I think one of the points that stood out for me in this one was how he talked about capital and talent sort of being recycled. And I think that's a really clever point. Talent unlocks capital for sure. Yeah. Nice. Um, Kate, what, what stood out to you? Uh, from from this one? Well, I mean, we were getting excited in the last story about talking about billions and now we're talking about trillions. Like, I wonder what, like, on the next story we're going to meet, what's, what's after trillions? But no, I mean, I think to Luke's point, there's just such huge potential and it's really just about working so hard to not like rest on our laurels and, and not kind of see like we've got to a great space and it'll sort of nurture itself. I think we've had this conversation around open banking, for example, you know, you can lay the foundations for a really great initiative or a really great ecosystem. But if you don't continue to support that and nourish it, then, you know, you lose, you lose that. It's not necessarily established enough to just sustain itself. And, you know, we're not into that sort of self-sustaining cycle just yet. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, really important for us to keep the lens on, on this is absolutely yeah and you know look that's such an important point right in the context of where this report has come from right tech nation and sarah of course tech nation have played an enormous role in nurturing that ecosystem um, up to now like kate said right yeah no absolutely um and i think there's always i sort of with any of these bodies there's always kind of a, an awful lot of talking um but i think tech nation are one of the few who actually did an awful lot of acting as well if that makes sense you know they, they actually put their money where their, their mouth was on, on you know numerous occasions and one that springs to my mind is the visas um you know the tech nation visas and, and making sure we have that supply of talent coming into the uk and um for what it's worth i just don't see barclays being able to fulfill to fill that gap and 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 portray um, and you know perform the same role as, as tech nation has has done thus far um with any of these reports i think these recommendations are great we have seen a number of them before you know i work with fintech wales um the one about kind of patient capital the one about you know filling to, to what luke called the, the no man's land um we have heard all of this before um for me it's always like how are you going to do it and don't get another report or another think tank together 
um, how, how are you actually going to make this happen? Um, and, and a kind of impractical steps that can be enacted without needing regulatory change or needing another huge body to agree on it, you know, uh, without needing you know, everybody to come together and say, this is exactly how we're going to do it. How do we, how do we do it now on the ground and get it moving? I think especially now, right, with all of the uncertainty that we keep talking about in the market and everything, you know, there's never been more of a need for sort of like decisive action in this space and how we continue to sort of drive it forward and the impact that it's going to continue to have. So I completely agree. Um, I'm going to close this on that one. Um, I'm going to move us on to the next section of the show, which is called Big Click Energy. I think it's always worth saying that one slowly. A quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news uh, this week. So, Kate, maybe you can get us started. I will do, and I'll speak nice and slowly as well. Um, our first story in this section comes from PitchBook, and that is that fintech startups are racing to serve LATAM founders left behind by SVB. Since Silicon Valley Bank's collapse, more than 400 startups in Latin America seeking a new home for their international banking needs have fled to a single Brazilian startup called Trace Finance. Trace itself is a seed stage startup, but has added an estimated $1.5 billion in new customer accounts to their waitlist in recent days. Seizing on the exodus of SVB depositors, Trace launched a competitor checking account, and many founders have jumped at the opportunity. In the Latin American venture economy, SVB played a leading role as a lender to startups that were raising money from international investors. Fintech startups like Brex, Ramp, and Mercury have also grabbed a share of the customers fleeing the lender. To find out a little bit more, we reached out to Bernardo Brights, CEO and co-founder of Trace, to hear how the company looked to fill the gap left by SVB in LATAM. So for the past year, we have been developing an alternative to Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and when the whole situation unfolded on Thursday and Friday, we had to move really fast. So we have helped um, users uh, move more than $200 million out of SVB in those two days. And after that, we were able to create a waitlist, launch manual onboarding, and then on the Monday that followed, we launched automated onboarding. Since then, we have amassed over $3.6 billion on the waitlist, considering what those users raised uh, on their last round. And uh, we now are positioning ourselves as the best alternative for companies in Latin America to bank their Cayman and U.S. holdings, while also having integrated effects which um, has already served more than 200 startups. Um, we serve more than half of the unicorns in Latin America uh, for our FX product. And we are prepared to be able to fill the void that SVB left for those users while serving them with an even better service than what they, they got with SVB uh, back at the time. Yeah, I bet that was a pretty mad weekend for them. I'm sure that was a, an absolutely ton of a ton of work. I mean, credit to them for wanting to create a sort of a, a, a native product that was serving these companies in LATAM. Um, when you look at PitchBook, it shows them as currently having 26 employees. So you just really hope that it's not something where you have a really great proposition that just kind of accelerates too fast and sort of falls over in the process. But you know, it sounds like they're doing all the right things, doing things very sensibly by you know, starting off that manual onboarding process, but then kind of looking to introduce automated processes as quickly as possible. So um, fingers crossed, yeah, they can, they can deliver on that promise and, and kind of build that even better service than, than what those previous 
um, companies we're experiencing with with SVV because we know that these are, are businesses that don't just need generic banking services. They need all sorts of other kind of support and guidance around that. Um, and so I really hope they can they can deliver on that for them. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. All right. And our next one comes from the papers. Uh, UK-based wearable tech company Digisec is partnering with financial super app Curve to bring wearable payments to more than 30 countries. The company states that the partnership will bring payment options to, quote, vast array of fashionable, functional and elegant wearable items. Unlike active wearable items like smartwatches that depend on battery life to function, Digisec's wearable tech enables virtually any passive item without a battery, such as a ring, bracelet, or even an item of clothing to be inserted with a chip and be transformed into a contactless payment device. DigiSecond Curve says the partnership will, quote, offer consumers even more choice and greater convenience in how and where they can pay. Now, look, I can maybe see a potential USP here in the point about battery life, but Honestly, I think beyond that, I'm fairly sceptical that wearable tech delivers much uplift on the, the phones and watches and other devices we sort of carry around with us everywhere we go already. So um, I'll be interested to see how this one plays out, right, I guess. What's the wearables worst that could happen, guys? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But I think wearables have been around for some time, right? So uh, we'll see. Um all right, and then I'm going to bring everybody back for the final section, looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. So this one comes from Insider uh, with a headline, JP Morgan Chase <laughs> thought it had $1.3 million worth of nickel stored in a warehouse. A closer examination revealed bags of stones. So the London Metal Exchange revealed a surprising mix-up last week at a warehouse in the Dutch port city of Rotterdam. An operator for the warehouse weighed bags that were thought to contain 54 metric tons of nickel, only to find that they were filled with stones. It appears that JP Morgan Chase is the unlikely owner of those bags, according to reports. Had they contained nickel, the bags would have been worth $1.3 million at current prices. So JP Morgan Chase bought the bags years ago and remains an active player in big metals. So Kate, you, you asked on our last story where we were headed, were we going up from trillions? I think we've actually come down to pretty much nothing. Yeah, I mean, I've never read so much about rocks in my life as I have done in, in the build-up to this show. Like the London Metal Exchange is, is something that I had not come across before. So this is very exciting. Um but yeah, I, I still can't work out like if they think this is just an accident or if they think this is some like amazing heist where someone's like snuck in under cover of darkness and like done a done a switcheroo on the on the bags. But um, yeah, I guess it's either going to turn out to be like deeply deeply boring, or it's going to be a, a major film like Ocean Eleven esque. So we'll we'll see. It's uh, I mean yeah, you're right. Like the sort of uh, the person in you that wants to think like the most fantastical thing is what happened almost sort of wants it to be the heist, right? Because obviously it's more exciting. Um, our producer, Matt, asked me to apologize for these uh, these puns up front, but I do want to get them out there uh, in all their glory. Kate, does the company need to be bolder in the metal exchange market? <laughs> oh dear, Matt. Um 
Well, I mean, it sounds like they they've not suffered any losses. It sounds like actually, you know, the London Metal Exchange will will kind of cover the costs and the loss. So you know what? Maybe J.P. Morgan Chase can can just plow on and and carry on going after the the nickel whatever it is industry. <laughs> I honestly, Matt has absolutely outdone himself here. Um, Look. Is every financial institution counting every nickel and dime in this current economy? We are, and Matt has done himself there. If 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 there's ever been a time where we're counting our nickels and dimes, it's now. All right, cool. Let's close on this. Um, what is the panel's best surprise find? So things like money in the street, expensive item in a car boot sale, something that you thought was lost and gone forever. Kate, let's start with you. Uh, I mean, I sadly very rarely find money in the street, or if we do, it's just like one of those like dirty one Ps that you don't really want to pick up. Um, I think my best surprise find actually was I discovered that I was unwittingly a, a stock image on on the BBC. Um, I had my picture taken when I was at Wimbledon and just turned up turned up on the BBC homepage one day. So that was that was a nice a nice surprise. But then it sort of subsequently it's it's now being used in all sorts of other random places so it's just me with like a union jack on my face but um it just pops up every now and again how are, how are any of our other panelists going to top that i really should have i really should have ended with you um sarah <laughs> yeah sarah i'm so sorry that you have to go next but what's your uh, what's your best surprise find okay so i'm not sure this counts as a find because it's not physical but um, a few years ago, I went to a funeral um, and at the funeral, there was this uh, sort of memory book, like a photo album with pictures of the person who died and um, sort of keepsakes, you know, invitations, that kind of thing. And one of the things in this book was an invitation to the person who's died's daughter's wedding. And on that invitation, the daughter had a different surname to her mother. And I sort of said, oh, you know, was this person married before to some people who were like, you know, family members? And they went, oh, we don't know. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, you never asked. And, and nobody ever bothered to ask. And I consider this a finding because presumably somebody knows, but it's just not talked about. So I'm going to have to go out there and go onto Ancestry.com and see if I can actually get to the bottom of this as to why the name is different. Um, so, yeah, I considered it a surprise find if, if that counts. Yeah, so that's me. Um, I don't think either of us can top Kate, but Luke, what about you? What was your weirdest find? Um, so my secret best find, which is related to the business, was um, at a very unfortunate time uh, in Vibe's journey and many other people's journeys uh, was the lockdown. And at the time we had two offices, one in Lancaster and one in London, um, just off Old Street. And uh, the Old Street office had around 30, 35 staff. And we'd placed a massive order for coffee for the office. And uh, when COVID, uh, obviously lockdown um, eased and we went back to the office, there was a huge order of coffee still left there for us. So it was like, a okay, we get, well, like, we've survived. At least we can have a nice coffee together, guys. I love that. That's really good. I'm actually surprised by how good all of these uh, all of these answers have been. It was really a uh, a speculative question, but one that you guys have pulled out of the bag. All right, look, I am going to end us there. That's all we have time for, and that wraps up this week's news show. Um, guys, thank you so much, um, all of today's guests. Let's go around the room. Where can people find out a bit more about you? Uh, Kate, let's start with you. 
Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody on LinkedIn or on Twitter at K8Moody. Excellent. Luke, how about you? I was going to say make a joke then about OnlyFans, but I thought it'd be pretty inappropriate. So you can just find me on Twitter, um, Luke Massey. <laughs> oh, well, that's a shame. All right. And Sarah, <laughs> how about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. And as for me, you can find me at Ross Gallagher 07 on Twitter. And as ever, thank you for listening. Please do join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye.